This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you. I don't know about you, but I just felt like standing in front of the word hope might be highly appropriate for tonight. So thank you for that introduction, and uh, it's a really honor to be here. But I, I, I couldn't really come to you tonight and speak to you tonight without being really honest with you about how I'm feeling, uh, which is really sad. Um, you know, I feel sad for all the parents who, like me, uh, had to wake up Wednesday morning and uh, tell our kids... I have two daughters, tell our daughter that, uh, no, the, the woman didn't win. Uh, the man who you had seen being a bully on TV, who you'd seen say horrible things about women on TV, who you had seen being demeaning and mean, um, that he was our president-elect. And I feel sad uh, that our president-elect has uh, said openly racist, homophobic, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim comments. Uh, I feel sad that he has bragged about sexually assaulting women, uh, that he now looks like he has appointed to head the Environmental Protection Agency a man who is a climate skeptic, and to the Ag Department someone who was an industry lobbyist, Uh, And I feel, frankly, totally shocked. Never in my wildest dreams would I imagine I would be giving a talk in 2016 about climate change two days after we have elected a president who has been openly skeptical about climate science. So I'd be lying if I came here and said I wasn't feeling profoundly sad. But I also feel, uh, as I hope all of you do, that... We have no choice but to keep working, keep fighting, keep talking, keep being together in community. And so I'm glad to see all of you here. And as I said to the small group of people that we had dinner with tonight, uh, at the end of that dinner, I realized as we were all talking, I said, I feel happier at this moment than I have felt since Wednesday morning. So we're on an upswing here. Uh, but I, I, I wanted to just start with just a couple of reflections, three quick reflections on this election, and then I wanted to um, share with you, uh, kind of tie this into what I wanted to talk about tonight. But just a couple quick reflections. I think the first thing that I want us all to, to really remember about this election and, and to have conversation about and ask why and talk to professors about is, you know, why is it that so few people turned out? Why is it that actually if you look at Uh, The votes for Trump and the votes for Clinton both got fewer votes than McCain got when he was running against Obama. Why is it that only 46.9% of eligible voters voted in this election? So that when you talk about who is in support of Trump or Clinton, we're talking about 25% of those people who voted which is only a small fraction of the eligible voters, which is only a small fraction of our population. So, you know, so be curious about this. Talk in classes, talk with your professors, talk with each other. Why is this happening? What does this mean? What can we learn from it? The other thing I want us all to reflect on is to think about what did this election say about those of you who are part of the 18 to 25 year olds, the young people in this country? Probably a lot of you have seen this map. Does anybody want to tell me what this map is of? Right? What the electoral college vote would have looked like if we as a country had just let the 18 to 25-year-olds decide. (laughs) 
So what does this mean? What does this mean for your generation? What does this mean uh, for the future of this country? What do you take from this? What do you take from, 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 from a map like this? And then the third thing I think I know personally I'm reflecting on and you know, I encourage all of us to reflect on is you know, where do we go from here? What do we do with the energy that we're feeling? Sadness is essentially a form of energy. So how do we take that energy and put it towards something positive? How do we work together in our community so those people who are feeling the most targeted and the most vulnerable as a result of this election come to feel the most protected and supported by us? So there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of questions to be asked. And you know, I think you all here you know, have each other to talk to in conversation and talk about these talk about what's just happened, which is frankly the most significant election, certainly in my lifetime. So as I was reflecting on this moment, I started thinking about what were some of the really politically formative moments for me. When I think about you who are here who are college students, <clears throat> I think about this moment as a huge moment of political formation. <clears throat> and I think about one of the most formative experiences for me as a young person was in 1992. I was an undergraduate at Brown University. I had just, it was the spring of 1992, I had just turned 18, so I'd never been able to vote for anything in my life. <clears throat> and a number of students had been organizing, really picking up from years of organizing prior, organizing around a campaign to get Brown University to be a need-blind school. So need-blind admissions means that the admissions office actually determines whether students are eligible to come into your school based on, on the qualities of the person. Need-aware admissions means that a certain portion of admissions into Brown University were being determined by whether that student or those students could pay to afford to pay full tuition. In 1992, Students were picking up from organizing that had been happening for years because our president at Brown, Vartan Gregorian, had announced a major capital campaign. He was planning to raise tens of millions of dollars, but he wasn't planning on becoming a need-blind university. And so all of these students from all classes, from across race, ethnicity, all came together to say, this is a total outrage. This is not what we should stand for as a university. We should stand for fairness and justice. And we have the ability to make the choice to maybe not get such a fancy new gym, but maybe we could be a need-blind school. So we organized teach-ins, and we organized discussions, and we organized protests on our college green, and nothing was making a difference. And we ended up sitting in at Administration Hall, the administrative building on campus, starting at 8.30 in the morning, hundreds of students. And there were more teach-ins and more conversations until 5 p.m. the university said, we are going to lock these doors and anybody inside will be arrested. And if you want to leave, now is your chance. 253 students stayed inside and the university arrested us. They brought the Providence Police Department in. They marched us out two by two to at around 9 p.m. to tiers of students on either side of us cheering us on. And it was my first moment of nonviolent civil disobedience. And it was so inspiring to be among these people who were really fighting for what we knew was right. But not only did the university arrest us, they actually pressed charges, five charges, including uh, uh, disorderly conduct and uh, willful trespassing. And then what happened next is what really stuck with me. 
What happened next is that Vartan Gregorian sent a letter home to every parent of all the students and sent a letter to every student on campus. And in that letter, he told his version of the story, which was we were naive students. There were outside communist agitators, if I remember correctly, but there were outside agitators who'd convinced us you know, to get all fired up about this issue, that we were naive to think the university could really afford this, that it was simply impractical. And I remember feeling so frustrated because so many of the students on campus who weren't there with us and who weren't part of that organizing believed that letter. And we lost support among students. We lost support certainly among our families. And I remember realizing at that moment that that is what power means. Power means having the capacity to shape the story. Power means having the capacity to even reach people through channels of communication. And I remember as a young person feeling, okay, this is what it feels to feel powerless because no matter how much we spoke out in our independent student newspapers and, you know, this is pre-internet days, so in our, 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 our in-person teach-ins, which is how things were communicated in those days, um, you know, no matter how much we did that, we couldn't go up against this authoritative figure of Vartan Gregorian talking about the way the world was. And so, in so many ways, I see how much I was influenced by that moment and how I see so much of the work that I've been doing around food and climate change through that lens of what is the story that we're hearing. And so let me take you to kind of my political formative moment around food and climate change. And I won't go into all those words and facts and figures on the side. So um, I want to just take you, flash you forward to uh, 2006 when I was 32 years old and I had been doing work on food and sustainability for a long time. And I stumbled on this report by the United Nations called Livestock's Long Shadow. And I'll never forget, I was living in Brooklyn at the time, and I had this tiny little home office stacked with papers, and I sat transfixed, I think, through most of the 284 pages of this report. I think I went through at least one highlighter pen. But by the time I was done, I was shocked. Because what this report did, for the very first time, was it looked at what is the global warming impact of livestock on the planet and the environmental impact, but to really try to assess it from a totally global perspective. How can we understand livestock's impact on the planet, on the environment, but especially climate? And what the researchers found is that the greenhouse gas emissions related to livestock alone were responsible at the time for about 18%, almost 20% of all greenhouse gas emissions. So to put that into some perspective, all transportation at the time was about 13%. And I remember being totally shocked by this figure. Since this report came out, the numbers, the percentage has come down to about 14 or 15% of livestock-related emissions, but still, it's so huge. And I remember thinking at the time, 2006, people were just starting to really bring the climate story into the public conversation, but I certainly wasn't hearing about livestock production. And I certainly wasn't hearing about even the bigger story. So obviously, we're doing a lot more than just eating and consuming meat and dairy. We're eating a lot of other foods as well. So if you, if you expand it up, if you expanded up and started to try to understand how much emissions were associated with the food system, you're talking about one, nearly one-third of all greenhouse gas emissions. And at the time, I was thinking to myself, I'm really not feeling like I'm hearing this 
story. I'm barely hearing the climate change story, but I'm definitely not hearing about this intersection between our global food system and the climate crisis. I'm not hearing about the fact that livestock that uses about three quarters of all of our land, but only gives us about 17% of our calories, is this key driver of the crisis. I'm not hearing about the fertilizer industry that's driving these figures. I'm not hearing about the deforestation on the land that's driving these figures. And I remember being so curious if I was just missing something or if I was right about this. And some friends of mine at Johns Hopkins University did what good university researchers do, which was they researched this question. And they looked at 16 of the biggest newspapers in this country, and they analyzed all of the articles that had been written in the last few years between 2006 and 2009 on climate change, and they coded them for how many mentioned agriculture or food as part of the problem. And what do you think they found? Those 2,830 articles, less than 2% had any mention of the agricultural or food system drivers of climate change. And so I started asking myself, well, why aren't we hearing this? And I think part of it is because people, this big disconnect between food and the environment. I think part of it was because, uh, was because the science was still so new, the science of climate change, the science of food systems, the science of these interrelationships. But I think a huge part of it was because the story about food systems was so dominated by the very industries who had and have a vested interest in not having us be curious about where these emissions are coming from. So when you look at, when I talk about the food industry, when I talk about the global food system, of course, this is a totally complex, inter interconnected web of corporations and sectors and industries uh, that make up what we could call this industrialized food system. Keep in mind, I should say, that about 70% of all the food most people on the planet still eat is not part of this industrial food system. It's small-scale farmers feeding their own communities. But those small-scale farmers feeding their own communities aren't the root cause of the climate and food crisis. The drivers of it are really these big industries that are part of, from kind of seed to plate to landfill, part of this global food, industry, global food sector. And so we're talking about big agribusiness companies that are controlling the seeds, the chemicals, the fertilizer, the fossil fuel industry, uh, the commodity traders like Cargill and ADM that are part of this global food industry and that have a huge stake in keeping the status quo as it is. You're talking about the meat industry, including not just the meat packers and not just the grain traders feeding the industrial livestock, but now one of the biggest vested interests in industrial meat production is the pharmaceutical industry. The global pharmaceutical industry is finding that its fastest growing and most profitable market is animal pharma because of the widespread use of routine antibiotics, antimicrobials, and all kinds of other drugs that are now allowed in industrial meat production. So when you're talking about this big system, and I'll, I'll talk a bit more about how this connects to the crisis, but you're talking about players that have vested interests at each one of these steps of production. And then you're talking about, in terms of big food, you're talking about the distributors, the processors, you're talking about the soda industry, you're talking about the retailers, you're talking about the fast food industry. And finally, you're talking about the waste industry, about 50% 
of all food that, that could be eaten is actually wasted on the planet. In some cities, it's 50%. Some, some cities, between 30 and 50% on average. But you're talking about a huge industry that's also really dominant in the waste, waste stream. So you're talking about all of these industries that have a real vested interest, interest in our not talking about these connections between food and climate. And so what is the story that I would like us all to be t t telling and talking about? What's another version of that food and climate story? Not that everything is fine, don't pay any attention to us over here, and please don't regulate us in our emissions, as currently in the United States, farms and agribusiness isn't regulated in the same way. But also what we are hearing from those dominant players in the industry is that we are your only solution to feeding the future in the climate unstable future. You know, we're all you've got if you want to be able to feed yourselves. And so what I'm suggesting is there is another story about food and climate change. And I want to go into this a little bit. And it's, I, um, I, want, I want you to think about it. If there's any one thing that you remember from tonight, it's to really remember these three, well, one thing, three words but three words associated to food, with food and climate crisis. Number one is to understand that the food system, and farmers in particular, are some of the chief casualties of the crisis. And I'll talk about this briefly in a second. The second is to understand that the food system is, as I mentioned, a really key driver, a culprit of the crisis as well. Certainly not the only one, and certainly not as a single entity the largest one, but certainly if we are to address the climate crisis and bring everybody to the table, we have to talk about food. And third, to understand that there are sustainable food solutions that are a key part of the cure, a key part of the solution to the climate crisis. So I tried to make it memorable for you, casualty, culprit and cure, but so those are the three key things I want us to, to keep it front of mind when we think about the food and climate connection. So climate casualty, farmers being at the front lines of climate crisis. I remember when I was doing research for Diet for a Hot Planet, one of the very first trips I took was to the Hudson Valley in New York. I was living in Brooklyn at the time, and I went to the Hudson Valley to be part of a meeting that had been organized by a NASA scientist, Cynthia Rosenzweig, who's one of the world's leading authorities on climate change and its impact on agriculture. And she was presenting to New York state farmers. So it was a bunch of farmers, Cynthia at the front of the room, and then me. And she had all of these really complex, amazingly sophisticated slides on climate science and projections about temperature and, and drought predictions. And then she got to one slide that was just a map of the United States. And it had a red arrow going from about Georgia up to New York State. And she said, if we don't reduce greenhouse gas emissions, farming in New York State by 2050 will feel like farming in Georgia. And every single one of these farmers in the room just took a deep breath. Because of course they understood the implications. It would radically change everything they knew about farming. And what we know from people like Cynthia Rosenbach and from the scientists in the field is we know that the climate crisis does mean more droughts, more floods, more weather extremes. We know it means pests being able to overwinter in regions that they never were able to before. And we know we're hearing from farmers already all the time how much changing climate has already impacted them. So when we think about food and climate, 
to understand that farmers are really on the front lines of this crisis and, as I'll talk about in a second, are a really key part of the solution. <coughs> the other thing I want to talk a little bit more about now is how is food part of driving this crisis? How is it, part, how is it a culprit? So I mentioned overall about a third of all greenhouse gas emissions are coming from the food sector. So why? Why is that happening? Uh, the first thing is the what. What are we raising and how has that changed over time? And one of the key drivers, as I mentioned, is livestock. And the reason why is, first of all, because we're raising so much more livestock than we ever have in human history. But secondly, it has to do with how we are raising this livestock. So bonus points if anybody can tell me what this is a picture of on the screen here. A lagoon. Somebody said a lagoon. Yes, not the kind of picturesque lagoon we might all want to be in at the moment, uh, but uh, um, it is a, uh, a lagoon, which the, the industry likes to call it a lagoon, uh, part of their dominant framing story. Uh, I like to call it a manure cesspit, uh, but the way industrial livestock operations work, they've disconnected livestock production from where feed happens. And so livestock producers are able to raise huge numbers of livestock in one place, which concentrates manure. Uh, it's a highly unregulated industry. It would be like if, if Santa Barbara, you know, city planners were like, we're just going to bring all of you residents here into Santa Barbara, but we're not going to develop a sewer system or a water treatment plant to deal with your waste. Essentially, these are open-air manure pits sometimes unlined even, but they're open air manure pits. And what happens in these manure pits is anaerobic digestion of methane. And that methane gas that gets released is a highly potent uh, greenhouse gas, much more heat trapping than carbon dioxide. And it's one of the reasons why industrial livestock is driving the crisis, but it's not the only reason. The other reason is because livestock that are ruminants, uh, cattle, uh, they, the, when they digest, is part of the natural process that they breathe out methane. You might have heard some jokes about cow farts and climate change. It's actually burps, if you want to get precise about it. Uh, but in the process of digestion, cows are releasing methane. And of course, the other huge reason why industrial livestock is part of the problem is, as I mentioned, with this increased number of livestock in these production systems, there's a huge demand for feed. So we're growing a lot more corn and soy and feed inputs when the meat is giving back to us just a tiny fraction of what we put into it. So the other reason why there is uh, such an association between the food system and the climate crisis has to do with this question of where we are growing our food. So one of the places that's really a hot spot for food and climate is Indonesia and Malaysia. Uh, when I started doing this research, palm oil production in Indonesia and Malaysia was not something high on my radar as part of an understanding of the, cli of the climate crisis. And as I dug into it, I realized that Almost all palm oil now in the world is produced in Indonesia and Malaysia. Palm oil has become the most widely traded vegetable oil in the world in the past 10 years. The palm oil plantations in Malaysia and Indonesia are being uh, created on vast swaths of land. You can see these are some clear-cut lands in Indonesia that used to be home to some of the most carbon-rich forests and peatlands on the planet. And the destruction of this rainforest to grow palm oil is perhaps one of the single largest 
largest drivers of the climate crisis in the last few years. You can see in the foreground some products you might be familiar with. You might not realize these products contained palm oil. There are things like Oreos, Cheez-Its, Hershey's Milk Duds, Twizzlers, Pop-Tarts. Uh, palm oil has become an ingredient in a vast number of processed foods in our supermarket for all kinds of reasons, including it can help keep shelf life for these products, and also you'll find it in a lot of peanut butter products. Uh, you, if you buy a store-bought peanut butter and it's smooth and creamy when you get it, that's because it had palm oil added in it to emulsify it. And when I talk to people about this, I say to people, you know, wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree to get your knife out and stir your peanut butter if it meant you might avert deforestation in Indonesia? And I have yet to meet a person who was unwilling to stir their peanut butter. So, so part of understanding this, this driver of the crisis is to understand the what we're, we're producing and then the where we are doing it. And again, palm oil is being a huge driver of this crisis. Um, and the other thing, the other reason why the food system has become such a huge driver of the crisis is has to do with how we are producing these industrial food products. And the single, uh, uh, the single ingredient of industrial agriculture that operations require is synthetic fertilizer. So synthetic fertilizer, is it, to make synthetic fertilizer is an incredibly, incredibly energy-intensive process. You're essentially taking atmospheric nitrous oxide, you're converting it into usable synthetic fertilizer. It's hugely energy-intensive. In places like China, places like China, that production is happening in, by coal-fired power plants. Energy is coming from coal-fired power plants. Remember, when I was writing my book, many of the coal plants that were going online coal-fired power plants that were going online in China were going online precisely to meet the growing demand for synthetic fertilizer for the growing industrial agriculture operations in China. The other reason why synthetic fertilizer has this connection to the climate crisis is because when you use that fertilizer, it also releases greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, and it undermines the stored carbon in the soils that get released into the atmosphere as well. So, the crisis is multifaceted. There are many reasons why the food system is connected to the climate crisis. But there's also this other part of the story, and this is where the hope of my title comes in, which is that the more that I started learning about these food and climate connections, the more I started understanding that farmers aren't just victims of this crisis, but that farmers and food producers are really our key our key to the solution, to figuring this out. Because the more that I started understanding sustainable agriculture, how it works, what it does to the land, what it does for the soil, what it does for the water, the more I started realizing that these are the very practices that we need to put in place to be able to have farms that can handle the floods and handle the droughts, to be able to have the farms that can produce biodiverse foods. And just to give you an illustration of how much difference these practices can make on the ground. I want to take you, this is a picture just to give us some atmosphere. This is not a picture of new forest farms in Wisconsin. But let me take you in your imagination to Wisconsin. So I went to Wisconsin as part of my research to try to find some of these farms that were putting these practices that I'd read about on paper into practice. Uh, started putting some of these farming practices you know, in play on the land. 
So I set up this interview with this farmer, Mark Shepard, and his farm, New Forest Farm, way before, uh, uh, weeks before I was to meet him. But as I was flying to Wisconsin, it was the day after, kind of the, the clouds had cleared, after one of the biggest flooding events in history in Wisconsin. So I arrive in Madison, and I think to myself, this is you know, sort of the job of a researcher is to bother people probably when they least want to talk to you, but I was just imagining I was going to meet this farmer who, like other farmers in the state, was going to be devastated. I felt bad I was bothering him, but I had a research mission. So I drove a few hours west from Madison, and as I'm driving to this farm, I see what look like lakes on either side of the road, and they were just cornfields still covered with rain. So I get to Mark's farm, and I arrive, and he's actually, at the moment I arrive, he's lounging on, in hammocks with his farm intern uh, in front of the apple cider plant that he has just built, powered by wind power that he had just put on his farm, and he does not look depressed or devastated. And so my first question to him is, Mark, you know, how's your farm? Are you doing okay? And he looked at me and he said, yeah, he said, we lost about 3% of our crop, but some of our crops have never been better. And we're standing there, and as he is talking to me, we can see down the valley across the road his neighbor's monoculture cornfields that have been totally gutted by the torrential rain. You can see the bare dirt that has been scrubbed from the sides of their fields because of the rain. And so I said to Mark, you've got to explain how, how did you do this? And what he explained to me is that in the 13 years since he had taken over that land, so just 13 years earlier, his farm had looked exactly like his neighbor's farm. He had bought it from a corn, commodity corn grower. In those 13 years, what he did was put into practice the kinds of practices that are known as organic practices or agroecological practices, the kinds of things that create the resilience that we saw that day. So what did he do? He did things like invested in um, creating uh, a, a more biodiverse farm that had lots of different crops. So that 3% of crops he lost were, I think, his peppers in one field. But he was growing lots of different crops. He also was employing agroforestry techniques and perennial, growing perennials and annuals. So what he had at certain parts of his farm was... Uh, a canopy of crops where you had trees that were kind of breaking the fall of that torrential rain as it came down. He did things like used natural techniques that farmers have been using for centuries and have evolved for centuries to develop things like uh, he put swales into his farm, which are essentially ditches that help direct the water where you want it to go. So that when that rain came, it went to places, it, it got spread across his farm as opposed to pooling in certain spots. But the major thing he did, which is the core basic principle of organic farming, of agroecological farming, was he built healthy soil. He invested in healthy soil through organic uh, methods of fertilizer, doing things like planting nitrogen-fixing crops, doing crop rotations, using green manure, using manure, using all kinds of different practices. And as a result, his soil was rich in carbon and microorganisms. And so his soil acted more like you can imagine it like a sponge that is able to absorb water versus a hard, flat surface that gets carved away by the water, if you can imagine that. 
And he was telling me, actually, he had some geologists out just a few weeks before the flooding, had, had, the flooding event happened. He had some geologists out to help him put in his wind turbine. So they had to dig this super, super deep ditch. And these guys so geeked out about the health of his soil that they actually got some other friends from the university to come to see just how healthy that soil was, how, how you could see the richness in the soil, you could see uh, the microorganisms, you could see that it wasn't just bare, vulnerable dirt. So he did all of those techniques, and as a result, what he was seeing was, was this incredible productivity despite this extreme weather event. And I remember a few years after I first met Mark, he and I were together at a, uh, a farmer gathering in the Midwest. And um, my book had just came out, and we were both talking. And afterward, you know, I had a few interested people come, come sign my book. But he had a line of farmers that snaked out the door to talk with them about coming to their land, helping them implement some of these practices. And so what we're seeing, not just on farms like Mark's farm, but with evidence growing from researchers who are documenting agroecological farms around the world, that they are more resilient. There was a study out of the Rodale Institute in uh, Pennsylvania that found when they compared over a 30-year period organic crop fields with non-organic crop fields, the, the organic production systems fared 33% better during drought years. What we're seeing is research emphasizing that organic, these organic systems, agroecological systems, use much less energy, and they emit much less greenhouse gases in addition to being resilient. So when we talk about what are the possible solutions, one of the things that we hear when, people, when I tell people this story about Mark Shepard and his amazing farm in Wisconsin, or the studies about how organic farming can feed the world, what is one of the dominant frames that we hear back from that? We hear organic farming cannot feed the world. It's impossible. If you want to have a well-fed world, you simply cannot uh, use organic practices. I've seen this in, in uh, mainstream media all the time. Often, I remember for my book, I was, I was searching all the times comments like this came up. And, I, and you, know, you, hear, you hear this and you're, well, who, who is saying that? Organic farming can't feed the world. The head of Syngenta, the largest chemical corporation in the world, again, that has that vested interest in uh, having us not see organic food as an alternative. So what are some ways to break that frame that, well, we can't cure the climate crisis with organic farming because we need to feed the world? The very first thing we can always say to people is to remind people that today on this planet, we are producing more than enough food to feed us all, in fact, to make us all chubby. But also on this planet today, as I mentioned earlier, we're wasting half the food that could get eaten. So without even increasing the productivity of any agricultural system, you can do the math. If you cut down waste, if you cut out food waste, you would have 50% more food right away. 50% more that could be eaten if we got rid of food waste. And there is a climate implication to this too. Uh, the Food and Agriculture Organization actually crunched the numbers on greenhouse gas emissions associated with just the production of food that gets wasted. Did you follow that? So, so the greenhouse gas emissions, right, coming from the production of food that we are not even eating. And they realized that those emissions, if you add them all up, that would put food waste 
That would essentially make food waste the third largest greenhouse gas emitter after China and the United States. So number one, when we talk about, you know, can agriculture, can organic agriculture feed the world, first we can remind people that production and productivity is not part of the problem. It's a distribution, it's waste, it's all these things. But the second thing we can say, and we can say it very loudly now, is that there is sound, solid evidence from studies all around the world that these kinds of solutions, especially in a climate-compromised world, are highly productive and high-yielding. There is a, a really fabulous study, for those of you who want to dig into this, out of the University of Essex that looked at farmers across the continent of Ag Africa that transitioned to agroecological solutions and found on average their yield went up 79%. In East Africa, their yields were going up on average 113%. Uh, you can find uh, a study that I like to think of as the most important study that nobody has ever read uh, that was put together by uh, 900 experts over four years, commissioned by the World Bank and other international institutions, known by an acronym that's um, only memorable because it's so bad, because it's I-A-A-S-T-D, which unless you're writing a report on STDs, don't really think you should have that in the acronym, but it stands for the, I can't even remember it sometimes, it's the International... Assessment for Agriculture, Knowledge, Science, and Technology for Development, I think is the name of it. But uh, Google IAASTD, and you will find this study that, that brought together thinkers, experts from around the world to look at what are the agricultural systems that we need for the future, to feed the future. And their resounding response was, we need the kind of agroecological systems that I saw on Mark Shepard's farm. We need to shift away from synthetic fertilizer as quickly as we can. We need to reduce our reliance on industrial agriculture operations. We need to reduce the emphasis on processed foods that use things like palm oil. We need to emphasize healthy, real foods that are also, by the way, the best for our bodies. Um, so there's incredible research and evidence coming out that really help us combat that dominant frame that we can't feed the world this way. And we're seeing, as a result, what we're seeing also is the evidence of there is this demand. Organic food is on the rise. I just saw organic food sales globally are now at $43 billion. I was just at an organic summit in Istanbul, Turkey, and I met the agriculture minister from, from Bhutan. I don't know how many of you know that Bhutan has just declared itself uh, shifting to a 100% organic agricultural system in that country. You know, so you're seeing people really say, yes, we can do this. Not just we can do this, but we must do this for our health and for the planet's health. And um, one of the things that gives me so much hope is that this is the kind of message that I am seeing increasingly become part of that dominant frame. So you start seeing in the dominant frame comments like this. Many people will tell you, organic food is just for rich people that it's not an economical way to approach agriculture, that it can't feed the world. Well, guess what? None of that is true. Anybody want to take a wild guess at who, who made this, this comment? And it wasn't me. <laughs> it wasn't Monsanto, although they do like to call themselves a sustainable agriculture company. But good, good guess. It's an unexpected answer. Anybody know who this guy is? Jim Cramer from Mad Money on, uh, 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 on CNBC. So to me, the fact that Jim Cramer is starting to sound uh, like organic farming advocates around the world is a sign that this dominant frame is starting to change. Um, 
And, and so I, I, I began by talking about the power of framing the story and the power of controlling the narrative. And if you've uh, studied frame theory in your classes or you've, you've sort of talked about this, this work, you understand that this idea is that we human beings are constantly bombarded with so much information and so many facts that we need a set of organizing principles to understand it. That's what frame theory tells us. And what we also know from folks that have looked into this is that as a result, those organizing principles can be so powerful that even when we hear all these facts, if they don't fit our frame, if they don't fit our organizing principle, then we throw away the facts before we give up our frame. And when I think about that story I told you at the beginning about my experience at Brown and my experience with the president you know, uh, of Brown framing that story, I was reminded of just how those in power shape that dominant frame and shape those organizing principles and how it is up to those of us who are critiquing them to try to figure out ways to share the story differently, try to figure out ways to offer a different organizing principle. And so what I'm trying to suggest tonight that there is a different organizing principle out there when it comes to food and climate. It's an organizing principle that says, Farmers are key casualties of this, and the food industrial food system is a key culprit and must be held accountable. And that agroecological solutions are a key part of the cure of what is going to help us have a robust, healthy, biodiverse, resilient food system. And what gives me so much hope is that in the 10 years since I read Livestock's Long Shadow in 2006, in the 10 years since that conversation, I feel like was either dominated by industry and there weren't advocates really offering alternative view, that that conversation has really radically changed. In 2006, there wasn't a single major environmental group that was talking about food systems and agriculture. Today, almost every single one is. The Sierra Club at this very moment is scoping what they might do around food and agriculture. And on the other hand, so many of the food advocacy organizations and food advocates weren't connecting their work to climate, and that has changed. We're seeing this huge, huge shift in the public conversation, and that does give me a lot of hope. And in fact, when I marched with the 310,000 other people in New York City for the People's Climate March, I was part of thousands of people that were part of a brigade of food activists who were making that connection between food and climate. So I would offer tonight that there is this ability that we have to shift these dominant narratives. It takes work, it takes time, but it is possible to make these changes. Um, when I was at Brown, 1992, we didn't pass need-blind admissions. We didn't convince the university that uh, they should rethink their unjust admissions policy. It would take another 11 years it would take another 11 years of students who didn't give up, who believed that they were right in their heart. And 11 years later, uh, Brown finally became one, like every other Ivy League university, a need-blind school. It would take another many years until this year in February for Brown to actually produce a comprehensive plan for equity and inclusion at the university. And all of that didn't just happen. It happened because students stood up, 
year upon year, class after class, and kept speaking up for what, again, they knew in their heart was right. And so I think at this moment, uh, I keep thinking about that phrase that you probably have all heard from Martin Luther King Jr., that the moral arc of the universe is long, that it bends toward justice. And I think that is right. I think sometimes the arc is so bending so slightly, we might not even perceive it. But I also hear in those words the message that the arc doesn't just bend on its own. It requires every single one of us to do the work. And I feel like we have more work now to do than ever, but I am glad to be here doing it with you. So thank you. Thank you all. We have time for uh, questions and answers. If you do have a question, we have a microphone, I believe, on either end, if you'd be kind enough uh, to come up and ask a question. Um, I would, just to warm up, yeah. I have a question from my class. Um, and I think there are people who want to ask questions, yeah, yeah. so let's make it maybe a mm-hmm. yes, no, maybe question. <laughs> but but the, the question is, as organic farming becomes more industrial mm-hmm. and more Walmart and more mm-hmm. Whole Foods. Is that, on average, is that better? Is that a good thing? Or should we be supporting small, local, um, right. or what should we make of that? Right. That's a great question. Hard to say yes, no, or maybe to that. Uh, I would say that as organic has become more mainstream, I, I just saw, uh, what was the soda company just came out with an organic... Uh, Gatorade. Organic Gatorade, thank you. So, you know, do I think organic Gatorade is a sign that we're winning? You know, I would, as someone who is a huge critic of sugary drinks, I would say, no, don't drink the organic Gatorade. So I, I think that it's a sign, the fact that it is, there is an organic Gatorade. The fact that, that uh, well, now Costco is the largest seller of organic food, is a sign that, that the industry responds to pressure to demands for change. It also is a sign that we have to continue to hold the industry accountable. So we have to let the industry know that we will not just be greenwashed too. I was at uh, an industry conference. It was actually the first Grocery Manufacturers Association sustainability conference many years ago. And I was in this little breakout session. It was all folks from the food industry uh, there. Uh, And I was in this little breakout session. It's a small little room. You know, I think everybody thought they were off the record, untaped conversations. Um, but one of the, uh, the executives in the room said, you know, Joe Consumer is only going to care so much. If we can just let them know that we're trying to make a difference, they're not really going to care about what we're actually doing in our supply chain. And I remember hearing that and thinking, he doesn't, know, he doesn't know the people I know who really want to hold suppliers to uh, accountability and transparency and make sure that as we scale up that we keep the integrity of something like organic certification. So, yeah. um, you talked a lot about organic crops yeah. and how their yields are greater and their agricultural practices are actually sustainable. Do you think livestock and eating meat will ever be sustainable on such a grand scale with yeah. the population that keeps rising? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, 
You know, I think the short answer is on the you, you said in your question, you know, do I ever think at the at the scale that we're consuming it, will it be sustainable? And the short answer to that is no. Um, we know from looking at the the facts and figures about how much livestock production has skyrocketed in this past generation, that this level of production and consumption is not sustainable. We also know that it's not necessary. We in the United States, on average, consume about twice as much protein as our bodies can even use. So we're, we're producing more protein than our bodies can use. And if you're a nutritionist, you know bodies don't, you don't store your protein as protein to use it later as protein. It's essentially another form of food waste. And so um, you know, my real um, rallying cry around this is we really need to get people to, and we need to think about what the policy framework might look like to do this, to have us be, as a, as a nation, eating less meat, but if you're going to eat meat and dairy, make it better meat and dairy. In other words, meat and dairy that's being raised with these more sustainable practices, if it's beef, uh, making that grass-fed beef. But it, you have to have, anytime you talk about sustainability, you always have to couple that conversation with consumption levels. Because you can have the most sustainable practices, but if you're over-consuming whatever that product is, whether it's you know, uh, fish in the sea or, you know, or grass-fed beef, if you're not talking about what's the sort of right-sized consumption level, then that's not a, a, that's not a story of sustainability. So it has to go, it has to go hand in hand. And again, this is where I'm really seeing progress. So a few weeks ago, I was uh, at an event with the James Beard Foundation, which I don't know if you know the James Beard Foundation, but they, they do, they, um, bring together chefs from around the world, in the country, and they promote, um, you know, sort of uh, leading chefs and restaurants. And I was there, one of the events they had was to um, celebrate the chef winners of their blended burger contest. It was a contest of chefs around the country to blend some of their beef burgers with mushrooms, mushroom, mushroom protein and mushrooms, to use less beef. And the, I, I don't eat beef, so I, don't, I can't vouch for how delicious these blended burgers were. I was like, do you have a blended burger that's like blended mushroom and mushroom? But, um, but, but apparently, these were delicious. And it was, again, this example of you know, what the, 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 the chefs were saying is, we want to use less meat. We want to use the meat we're using more creatively. By the way, it's also a lot cheaper to blend your beef with mushroom. And so we had uh, institutional caterers at this event who were saying they're moving toward blended burgers because they're saving so much money, not to mention all the environmental savings of not relying on beef. So. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Hi. Um, I suppose my first question is a clarification of a term that you mm-hmm. used, which was agroecological. Mm-hmm. I was um, wondering what an official definition of that would be and if it is a term that is gaining popularity in the movement. And also, in your experience, this gets to organic agriculture of uh, fruits and vegetables. In order to gain USDA organic approval, it is my understanding that it takes a number of years of not using synthetic uh, fertilizers or inputs on your land. And during that time, I was wondering if you have experienced a reluctance uh, or a reluctance of farmers in general to begin that process because you have a lower yield for a number of years and you also are getting paid the same amount as for uh, conventional agriculture. And if there are any cooperatives or any uh, support mechanisms in the community of farmers to help others through that transition period and into producing organically. Yeah. Great questions, both. 
Um, so on the last question, absolutely, you're totally right. It's three years uh, that you're transitioning. And yeah, you're not able to get that organic premium. So there's, there's a couple things that are happening to try to address that concern that farmers have. Number one, there are efforts being made to try to, through private dollars and public dollars, to, to actually uh, subsidize farmers during that transition period, to give grants to farmers, and there's been some efforts like that at the USDA level. Other countries do this. Other Italy has, I forget what I, I was just looking at the figures, I forget how many thousands of euros, but they, they give farmers money to transition. So that's been a big effort among organic advocates to try to pass policy at the federal level to, to, to help farmers in that, in that way. The second thing that, that people are doing, and if somebody's an expert on the USDA organic certification, you might know where this stands at this particular day and moment, but there's talk about creating an in-transition seal. So farmers who aren't certified can, out, can label their product saying, we are moving in that direction, because right now it's either or. Either, either you get the certification or you don't, and you don't get any of the benefit that you're moving in that direction. So I don't know if anybody, Razor, I don't know if anybody knows where that stands, but last I heard, there's real active conversation about that at the National Organic Standards Board, which is with the, the body that governs the certification at the um, USDA level. So Great question, and that's the two, you know, two of the things that are happening around that. To your other point about agroecology, so I, show of hands, and be honest, before tonight, how many have ever heard that word before? Heard, yeah, so, so yeah, let's try again. So be honest, don't raise your hand, really, if you thought you heard it somewhere, you know. If you've heard it before tonight, raise your hand. Okay, so like maybe... 3% of you. <laughs> so agroecology uh, is a term that's definitely more widely used internationally. Essentially, it's a term that uh, uh, organic would also fall within it, but it's a term to describe uh, agricultural processes that use uh, the, um, that are using the ecology of the farm, the farm itself, to try to source as much of the soil fertility, for instance, and aren't using toxic pesticides and are using those natural processes to build, um, to build that healthy soil. So agroecology is also uh, a term that's uh, used in the scientific community. So there are, uh, it's a, um, a field of scientific study as well. So there's been an, an interest in moving more toward using that term to describe organic agriculture because uh, uh, more and more researchers are moving into this field and there is journals of agroecology. And it's also um, really embedded in social movements. So the idea is that it's really coming from farmer to farmer knowledge. It's not coming from you know, private seed companies or private chemical companies or private fertilizer companies. I find as a term, I'm testing out using it because most people I know have never heard of it. Um, and, uh, you know, I think to some people's ears, it's, yeah, it doesn't, unless you really can define it, it doesn't have meaning. I know I was looking at um, the usage of agroecology in the New York Times, and it would probably come as no surprise to you that in, in the history of the archives of the New York Times, the term has been used something like 21 times, and most of those times in obituaries or wedding announcements of professors who work at like the Center for Agroecology, and then three times it was used by Mark Bittman in an article about Olivia de Schutter, who is the UN uh, Special Rapporteur to Food for many years. So it is not in the popular lexicon, but it is, uh, I think, a helpful term in that. It, it, I think what's helpful about it, too, is it really talks about more of the, the philosophy of the food, the social movement piece that uh, cannot so easily be co-opted by, you know, you, you won't see Walmart saying 
we are selling you agroecological food products. But it is a bit you know, hard to say. Uh, but if you want to learn more about agroecology, you can reach out to me. I will say, um, in closing, we'll close there. Uh, please come find me if you have other questions. I really want to hear them. If something I said didn't make sense to you, come talk to me about it. I want to know. If you want to stay in touch, our work is uh, home-based at realfoodmedia.org. We also have an international short films competition called Real Food Films. If, in these days of darkness, you need a little inspiration, we have these four-minute films. They're all available free to screen at realfoodfilms.org. They're fun to watch, and they're mental palate cleansers in these dark times. So uh, thank you again, everyone, for coming out tonight. It was really a pleasure to be here. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.